perpetual Monday. Yeah, that's actually a really good way of putting it. <laughs> I thought about that the other day. I was like, it just feels like a Monday, you know? Over and over again. Yes. Maybe it's because I have really small hands. <laughs> I'm not the person to ask. I barely know how to use my iPhone. <laughs> I know, right? No, really, I'm like... Welcome back, everybody. It's your host, Natalia, back for another episode of More Than a Pretty Face. Today, I am here with the delightful Rena Shaw. Rena is a longtime conservative commentator, and she has just launched a Republican Women for Biden. So, Rena, do you want to introduce yourself? Hey, hey, yeah. I mean, I guess. You know, when I go out trying to introduce myself, I don't know what to say. I always start with mom these days, though, <laughs> because I feel like it's a thing. I need to tell people that I am parenting two tiny kids during mm-hmm. this pandemic, mm-hmm. and it has really changed my world. But uh, beyond that, I uh, I have a public affairs and government relations practice uh, that, that mainly focuses on strategic communications. I've been doing political campaigns for a very long time, legislative strategy for companies, both domestic and international. Uh, that are really interested in in Capitol Hill, Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C., understanding what happens in this town. And so um, it's been a fun career these past nine years I've been doing this. And then before this, I was on Capitol Hill as a senior staffer to two members of uh, the House of Representatives, and they were Republicans. So it's been uh, a fun time I've had in this town. I'm going on 14 years here. Oh, my gosh. Such a long time. (laughs) You're basically a native to be in in D.C. this long. It's you're a native at that point. Um, Totally home. Totally home. So I kind of want to like just get started on, you know, how did you get into Republican politics? Because I feel like just so I met you because um, you come in and you're a regular contributor to MSNBC. And as listeners know, I work for NBC News um, and I, I, it took me a while to find, like, understand that you were a Republican commentator, actually. <laughs> well, because, like, a lot of just your positions on things seem very antithetical to uh, Republican practices, not being, I mean, you're very staunchly anti-Trump, I know that, but not just on that front, just in terms, I feel like, LGBTQ plus issues, like, so other health issues, health care, Black Lives Matter, like, you seem yeah. to, like, in just many respects completely not identify with Republican um with the Republican Party. So I just want to start there. I was like, I that's the first thing I wanted to ask you. Oh my gosh, then that's the question I get the most, but I'm happy to answer it because it is confusing <laughs> to a lot of people uh as to how I still call myself a Republican strategist mm-hmm. and consultant in the year twenty twenty and what a year it's been. Um obviously it's an awful year for so many reasons. And I mean I'd be remiss if I didn't mention first and foremost that I got into politics and government because I just love people and it breaks my heart. Um all the, all the time. Every time I, I let it hit my brain that we have over 130,000 fellow Americans who are, are dead from COVID-19, mm-hmm. I, I just think to myself, wow, what a failure of our government at all levels. Um, it's hard to, 
to really put the blame on one level of government for this. But I, I do blame our federal government because I believe in, in, in moments of, of great crisis, emergencies of this magnitude, a pandemic, whenever would we have something so big that would affect, you know, all of us across the land, coast to coast, uh, territories everywhere. The world is forever changed by this pandemic. And if our federal government had led and if our president had not called this um, a hoax from the time it hit our shores, or even before then, actually, I think we would be in a better place today. And so, yeah, the year 2020, it's really hard to say that um, I identify with uh, the party in its current form. It's just not a place that I feel welcome anymore. Mm. I don't, you know, I, I think a, a really popular saying right now is that I didn't leave the party. The party left me. Mm. And I think that that to me encompasses everything I felt. I was, as I said, on Capitol Hill for a long time. And, uh, well, not a really long time, but to some, it was long. <laughs> it, was a, it was approximately four years. Um, but, but yeah, in those four years, I managed to work for two members of Congress. And mm-hmm. so in a way, and I moved up and down the ranks, whatever you want to call it. And I, I got a lot out of it. And I, and working for those two pretty far right Republicans who are now retired, um, opened my eyes up to a lot because I, I trace my, my affiliation with the Republican party back to when I was sitting in my Southern West Virginia high school cafeteria mm-hmm. getting registered by then, um, at that time, Joe Manchin, who is now mm. uh, a, senator, a senator from, from West Virginia, long-term U.S. Senator, longtime serving, and he was in the position of Secretary of State, and he came to high schools around the state and registered us, and and I just don't know what it was. I Maybe a little bit of what I'd studied. Uh, the Republican Party started out as the anti-slavery party. We, we should know that. Um, I'm not trying to say, look at the party differently today because <laughs> of where it started, because mm-hmm. where it is today looks nothing like what it used to be. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I just I checked the Republican box, not because my parents were Republicans. Um, they did vote for some Republicans, but they also voted for some Democrats. And that's what West Virginia was growing up when I was I was growing up there in the 80s and 90s was um, was pretty purple. I call it. We, we voted blue statewide and we voted red presidential. That was really kind of what West Virginia was known for. Fast forward to today, it's red through and through. And so it's a it's an interesting place I come from. My affiliation with the Republican Party really became much deeper after college. I went to my state school, West Virginia University, where Mm -hmm. I began studying engineering, um, moved on to to do one of my greatest collegiate moves, I believe. (laughs) There were a lot of moves. There were a lot of parties. (laughs) There were a lot of things like that. But the greatest of which was um, winning the seat of uh, Panhellenic president. And that Mm. was the governing body of all the sororities on my campus. And we had a huge Greek system. And I would say that was a very political um, experience for me, extremely mm-hmm. political. I survived an impeachment. <laughs> <laughs> That's a story I actually do not tell much. <laughs> I've been out of college for like 15 years now. So it's, uh, actually, this is year 15. So, so anyways, uh, I'm getting old and I'm dating myself, which, look, it's not a bad thing. I've been, I've been in D.C. a long time. I've been in Republican politics long enough to, to say um, – the party did leave me. It, it it was always moving in this direction in my lifetime. Mm, mm. Yeah, so the the party has been moving 
in a direction that I've been uncomfortable with for a long time. Mm. Actually, my, my time on Capitol Hill, I could see it and I felt it. And it was so like 10 years, like, Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and it's, it's, I'm on my 12 year anniversary since I started on Capitol Hill. And in that time I knew that the social conservatives were just how bad abortion was always hot, remains hot. It Mm -hmm. remains a defining issue somehow. Um, but look, I mean, there are people that are single issue voters. They remain with the Republican party for that reason. But my, my thing is this, if we are a freedom and liberty loving party, if we love liberty and freedom so, so much, and we want the government out of our backyards, out mm-hmm. of our bedroom, out of our bank accounts, mm-hmm. then shouldn't we put that in practice? Mm-hmm. It, it was interesting in your question. You, you said you don't seem like one that, you know, sort of. Yeah, there's just so many just going, just yeah. going through. And like, I always like to prep myself more on the guests because obviously I, I knew the side of you that was that came into the bureau said you know and we chit chat and yeah. and then you do your head and we talk and like I said it took me a while to understand that you were the Republican strategist on the panel for that for that time frame for that B block I was like oh that's what she's doing there <laughs> um, and, and, and I, I'm like I'm so serious because like so yeah. much of what you know Republican politics, I feel like, are today are are just are just not a lot of what you seem to stand for, um, and so that's like that's that's why I, I you know part of the reason I wanted to have you on because I love having different perspectives and different narratives yeah. from different women, and especially being a woman of color to be in a party in this time, like what does that look like for you? Because you're you're Indian American, right? And yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, my, both sides of my family are ancestrally from India, but mm-hmm. my dad's side, we're from Uganda. We were immigrants there for three generations. Oh, wow. And it was incredible. Um, our story dates back to how we left Uganda dates back to Idi Amin, the dictator who, who called for the genocide of all non-blacks in Uganda. Mm. And we were immigrants there. And like, this was one bad man, you know, and, and it was a horrible story of oppression, dictatorial rule. Um, but what we, what it gave me, what I took away from my family story beyond just sort of the human condition of a person, uh, of a group of people, I mean, they're, they're genuinely my, my, my grandparents and my dad, um, and my aunts and, and everybody on my dad's side of the family, they know people who perished. I mean, they, mm. there were horror stories coming out of there that Idi Amin's men, uh, would, you know, basically, yeah, they lynched these people. They, they, they were just Indian business owners who had immigrated to Uganda mm-hmm. and they were prosperous and there was a, a hate for that. And, and it's, um, it's very similar to what I see, uh, a lot of, uh, being pushed out by the far right. That's been emboldened by mm-hmm. this president. That's been embraced by this president. Mm-hmm. This sort of your color is wrong. So you don't belong here. That that's what my family story was like all about. Mm-hmm. Essentially. That's why we lost everything. All the wealth accumulated over three generations was lost overnight because we were told to leave because we don't belong there because the color of your skin is wrong. And I just think that what my takeaway was, I think more than anything was how awful is it when government gets too big, too oppressive, the people don't have a chance anymore because there's this big evil force and it's calling itself the government that we're here to help you. But here we think this is wrong. So we're going to take care of it. And, and whatever the government said had to go. And I, I think that's really what has led me to sort of that, that 
what used to be embraced by the, the Republicans and, and conservatives. It used to just be agreed upon that, look, we don't care what your religion, you know, your creed, orientation, any of that was. And I, I, again, sexual orientation is very different because conservatives, um, by basis of the religion, would say it's wrong for a, a woman and a woman to lie together and a man and a man to lie together. And I think that's where I've just fundamentally always been divided with the party. I've always believed in the freedom to marry. Mm-hmm. My husband and I have a piece of paper from the state that says we're married. But we also happen to have a Hindu ceremony, which is the faith my husband was born into, and uh, with some elements of Jainism, which is my faith. And we've blended those faiths. And um, and it's been incredible. But, you know, a piece of paper from the state didn't make our marriage more real. Our faith made our marriage more real to me. And so I think anybody who wishes to marry deserves that piece of paper from the state. Uh, former Governor John Huntsman of Utah was a big fan of, of civil unions. And he was Republican, remains a Republican, one who just lost this past week. <laughs> <laughs> I should note. Um, but look, he shouldn't have taken that ambassadorship in Russia. <laughs> I don't think he should have. I digress. Clearly, uh, civil unions are something I've really loved for a long time. I believe in the freedom to marry. I think if we're the freedom-loving party and we love liberty so much, then we should give people um, the freedom to do what they want to do with their bodies. And because whatever they choose to do with that unborn life, they may not consider it a life. That is up to them. And if that, if that life is growing within their body, then they should be able to do what they want with it. And look, I have my own personal beliefs. I'm pro-life for myself, but I'm pro-choice for other women because I don't believe we should be telling other women what to do with their bodies because at the end of the day, they answer to their own God or maybe they don't believe in God and that's okay too. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what America at its core is all about. Do we see that in practice? Never. We hear about older, typically white men legislating women's bodies. And they don't ever, it seems, take into account what women of color go through, particularly Hispanic and black women in lower income communities, even Asian women in lower income communities. Just the absolute, you know, awful things that happen in our society. There are are moments when abortion is necessary and it should be agreed upon that it should be necessary. Um, I mean, it should be okay in the case when it's necessary to save a woman's life. But what I've been appalled by is those conservatives who are opposed to abortion, even in the case of incest and rape. I find that particularly disturbing. Um, And and when it's a man that takes that view, I just think, you know, I think it should be widely accepted that what happens within women's bodies is is a matter of personal business. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it goes back to that whole line that I love to sort of rattle off all the time. Keep the government out of my backyard, my bedroom, and my bank account. That's Mm. what the Republican Party was supposed to be about. (laughs) Um, I'm all about, look, let's not tax everybody to death. I do think uh, taxes are part of the social fabric. Mm -hmm. What we owe to the most vulnerable people in society is part of the social pact, actually. I mean, we should have some taxes. Um, but the levels at which, you know, we tax our, our fellow Americans, I just didn't, I'm, I, it's state to state, right? But look, I, I think at the end of the day, we can agree that that is, um, an issue that even this Congress, the Republicans in this Congress, they've paid no mind to that. They've almost thrown out those fiscal, 
fiscally conservative principles, which is why I've even stayed with the party. Mm. It's sort of, mm. hey guys, weren't we the ones supposed to sort of rein in government spending and say, hey, let's not just like, you know, let the taxpayers have this black blank check signed by them. Mm-hmm. And especially what we've seen with this PPP stuff. My gosh. It Sorry, is, I have um, something in my eye and I'm just like, but I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I probably look crazy. <laughs> you look like a girl that's just rubbing her eye, <laughs> which is me all the time. Like, honestly. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, it's, I, I get really, I get really worked up about this stuff, mm-hmm. man. I do. I just, I get really worked up about the way Republicans in Congress act now. Um, it's, it's more than an annoyance that, wow, these guys, they're not doing what they're elected to do, right? Which is, is genuinely working. I mean, Cong- Congress has had a horrible approval rating for <laughs> years on end. Yeah, that's that. like, yeah, that's... Mm. Um, but I trace a lot back to Newt Gingrich, man. Newt Gingrich was... That is not a good man. And I encourage anybody listening. <laughs> I don't want to give much airtime to Newt Gingrich, but, but just go to Twitter and go to, like, whatever, your favorite search engine. <laughs> Bing. I know Bing is still out there. Bing is still out there. You know, I, I was chastised for using Internet Explorer the other day. <laughs> okay, but go to your favorite search engine, type in this clown's name. Newt Gingrich has some real, like, I mean, that guy has blood on his hands. And he has a lot to do with why we live in this really hyper-partisan, polarized era. And how do you like, so, I mean, I think it's so interesting that you talk about Hinduism and Jainism, like, that is something that I feel like you don't see talked about enough, especially in conservative politics. Um, How do you kind of approach that? Because I feel like maybe you walk into spaces and they just assume that, you know, okay, you must be a very like conservative Christian because you're part of this Republican party and, and whatever that means and looks like. Um, and how, I mean, like, how do you navigate that space? That's a tough space to navigate. And that's an excellent question because there is this overwhelming, um, majority of evangelicals as well, you know, and, and like I said, single issue voters who oftentimes are Catholic. Um, I went to Catholic school K through 12. Mm. school was incredible in my life don't get me wrong I and, and we used to go and this was a tiny town in southern West Virginia I was born in and raised in and my mom used to just say you know there are a lot of paths to God you know that bumper sticker <laughs> coexist. yeah I, I love it because like my mom was drilling that stuff down in us at a young age we're like mom they won't let us take communion she's like that's cool you're gonna sit in the pew and you're gonna pray to God these are all good teachings and, all mm-hmm. that. and I really and that was really woven into our fabric and, and Jainism is is that it to me it's a way of life it's a philosophy and um and it is a it, it, it's a belief that non-violence and tolerance should be paramount should be key mm-hmm. in everything you do and and that non-violence it means in, in action as well as in thought. And, um, yeah, it's hard to get people to understand that I, my family practices a very ancient religion <laughs> that was is rooted in South Asia. And, you know, our, our, the 24th monk whose teachings it was based on or, or it was a contemporary of Siddhartha from Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's really hard to... to, <laughs> to to really communicate that to people when you're like, look, I'm, I'm all kinds of mixed up because I believe there are all paths 
to one. Mm -hmm. I believe in this superior being. And I think that's where I've been able to sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, You know, really like get those conversations to a place they need to be when I, Mm -hmm. when I assure people that I believe in God and one God too. Mm -hmm. But that seems to sort of like, okay, disarm the, the people that are like, Oh my God, she believes in many gods. And I'm like, look, dude, like, I'm not here to talk about my religion. I'm here to, like, <laughs> talk about what we believe in, American mm-hmm. values. Why that? I'm, like, telling you this situation, like, as if you guys would know that I, I yeah, I've been in tons of those rooms. Um, and the last room I was in that was tough like that was probably the Republican convention in Tampa in 2012, where mm-hmm. uh, people were assuming I was Christian and sort of, like, that I was, like, pro-2A and stuff like that. I'm like, uh, I'm I'm pro two A in the way where I'm like we need to talk about resp- responsible gun ownership mm. and taking assault weapons off the street uh, and out of the hands of people like these these assault weapons should be banned and I, I believe the NRA way back when used to believe that as well but in its current form you've got people who are like give let me hold my gun or give me death you know and it's, mm. it's crazy it's crazy because like we oscillate in these rooms where republicans have existed for often, many a time like local party meetings or you know, gatherings like cpac it does come up oh yeah man i was out back shooting my gun the other day like i come from west virginia i'm used to that there's a gun culture hunting culture i should say so guns are a big part of that. Um, but the culture of guns now and like the shootings. And then when you try to bring in that aspect of religion, whereas I just told mm-hmm. you online, right? Like Jainism rooted in nonviolence, like through and through. Man, I'm a lifelong vegetarian for that reason. We don't mm. even believe in eating the flesh of another. Mm. <laughs> like, that is how, you know, that's how rooted it is. Um, although I married like the world's biggest carnivore. So. <laughs> but he does his thing. I do mine. We agree on, you know. <laughs> But we, we, we meet in the middle. Um, he can have meat at home. It's all good. <laughs> I'm just not cooking. It. <laughs> it's like you can do what you want, but me and my chickpeas yeah. are quite content. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did give him the Impossible Burger the other day, and he was like sprung. He was like, okay, this is really good. He's this like, this will like work food. out after all. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, yeah, I know. I, my, it's funny. My husband, I, I didn't realize he he was a Republican when I met him. Like he he knew I was a political strategist mm-hmm. at the time, but I made it a point not to ask him what his politics were. Given we did meet in a restaurant, like totally by chance, he mm-hmm. walked in. We started talking randomly. That kind of happened. So I didn't have a chance to ask him like his political <laughs> affiliation. <laughs> but it was kind of interesting because he grew up in 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 Alabama and. You know, just it was really interesting to hear kind of what his experience was. Do you feel like you meet other people like you that are, you know, have these quote unquote more progressive social like contracts but identify as Republican? Yeah, I actually, funny enough, I have met a lot of these kind of people, and a lot of them are people like me. Funny, it's funny enough, it's 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 typically, um, Asian Americans. Mm. I'm not shy to say that because there's a lot of research that shows and tells that we are socioeconomically, I think we're in a class of our own when it comes to immigrants. Like we, we, for example, for my family, it was like shame if we ever took government help assistance. Mm -hmm. But if you did take it, um, you did your best to get off it right away. You know, Um, that's sort of the, the sort of, 
consciousness in the in the Indian American segment of the population. Mm-hmm. And I'm, a, I'm first generation, so I feel comfortable saying that because the, the interesting thing about it is that our parents come over here and they come over here for like all the great opportunity, right? But there's a lot that sort of doesn't get talked about, which is needing to assimilate. And the whole thing, at least for, for I can tell you from my experience, from my lived experience, I can safely say that that Indian immigrants to this country have always felt like, oh, racism won't touch you if you mm, achieve mm. a certain socioeconomic status. And I have black girlfriends that I've talked to about with this. I, I You know, you have to tell me. They grew up with this sort of notion, and we're in our 30s, so I wonder if I'm, I'm talking to women around my age, like 30s, early 40s. Mm-hmm. They're like, grew up with this notion of respectability. Racism, you could perhaps be untouched by it. Mm-hmm. If you become one of them. And that's achieve a certain class of, of income. You know, you enter their income brackets. You can afford the country club. You can afford a, a Range Rover. I mean, I, you know, I've seen it. I've seen many iterations of this. Mm. And I, I mingled with a lot of cousins who grew up in large urban areas. I'm, I happen to grow up rural. And, and one thing is that they are, when you start to talk to them, and, and I'm talking to all my family members, I'm talking about people I've just met, acquaintances, you hear a lot of that fiscal conservative message because it's drilled down in our par- from, in us by our parents. Mm-hmm. They, my dad came here with 80 bucks, like 80 bucks, grew it into like 800 in his first month. And he told me, it was like my sister and her husband, man, they like, he was living with them. He's like, they wanted to spend on groceries and furniture. And he was like, I'm just thinking to myself, dude, <laughs> like this, these are a lot of expenses, you know, <laughs> but, but it was incredible because that family bond is big. So my dad was came over. He was a young general surgeon. Came over to train at Duke University. My aunt was already already here as a speech uh, language pathologist. My uncle was a doctor as well at Duke, and and they all lived together. And it was great. My dad was unmarried at the time, and he flocked to the mountains of Southern West Virginia to complete his training in trauma surgery. And uh, people told him back then, like, man, you're never going to see this kind of trauma surgery. The the vehicular accidents, like mm-hmm. the windy roads, and uh, the mining the mining machinery accents, like you're going to get an incredible experience out here. And he got to Southern West Virginia and it was just really great. You know, he loved it. He, he felt like it was God's country. And he, my mm. dad had always talked to me when I, from the time I was a young girl about America as a concept, as this idea. Mm, mm. And it was just incredibly powerful to me. It always sat so well with me. America was this beautiful thing. This like not experiment, not project, which we know it is. Uh, those things as well, but it was this this beautiful place where you could live in unity with others, and you could like experience a diversity of others, and live harmoniously, and all be uh, reaching for something better than the station you were currently at, and that would be within your reach because this was the land of opportunity in that mm. way. And so it was just a, it was funny in that way for me, my, my upbringing, like it had so much to do with, yeah, like my fiscal conservative nature. We, if we didn't have it, we didn't spend it. And that's, um, I mean, I feel like that that's, a, I feel like that's a way for like a lot of immigrants though, because like my parents are also immigrants, um, and coming from, from, from Jamaica Amazing. and like, I remember something Amazing. my mom always would say to me 
although she'll probably forget that she constantly used to say this knowing her, was that um, she's like, me and daddy, you know, when we were together and we were like building, you know, my sisters be out here buying, you know, two fish, but we always got one fish and we split it. She's like, why buy two fish when you can buy one and split it? And that's like, (laughs) which is a very Jamaican way to like say something like that. But it was basically this idea of like saving and being like, you don't need just because you can buy two fish doesn't mean that you need to. And I think that is a is a mentality for a lot of immigrants because there is, you know, my parents are the same way. You know, we if you don't have it, you don't need to spend it. And even if you do have it, still don't spend it. So, and I, and I, so I think it's interesting that you brought that up and that for you, it turned into conservatism and, and being part of the Republican party. And now when you were young being in West Virginia, did you feel like you were an outsider a bit, even because we think, I mean, we think of West Virginia now as a very conservative place. Um, and we think of it as a very white conservative place. Did you feel out of place being Indian American and feel the need to kind of assimilate to that conservatism to fit in? I would, I would just say, you know, I, I, I rarely, if ever, describe myself as an Indian American because to me growing up there, I was just American. I was born mm. there. I was raised up there. I mean, there was... I was just as American as everybody else. And so did I feel othered? Touches of that. Touches. Like, mm. and, and I'm, I'm saying very, very minor moments. Maybe I was, you know, summer gymnastics camp one time my mom threw me in, you know, like every other mother, <laughs> she just wanted me to be busy, right? Mm-hmm. It was great. And uh, I got to do all these things she never got to do. And it was just incredible. I'm bouncing around on this trampoline. I go to the side, sit off for a second, take a rest. This girl's bouncing. Then she comes over, sits next to me. She's got the happiest smile. She's so, um, I, this was years ago. I must have been like nine. I still remember this. I still remember what she sort of, just how happy she was and how sweet she was. And just her whole entire uh, demeanor. And she's like, hey. And I'm, hey. She's like, you're really tan. You got really tan this summer, girl. You've been laying out. And I was like, what? <laughs> Hold up. In my head, I just, I, I, don't, I mean, I'm so, I was so young. Maybe not 10, maybe I was nine or 10 for sure. Um, but I just remember not saying, I just like froze up real quick. Cause mm-hmm. I just, what does she mean by you're real tan? And not in a bad way. I just was super confused. I was like, Huh? Like, mm-hmm. you've always been brown. <laughs> but to her, her mom was probably laying out, you know, doing all the yeah. things the women in the 80s did. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I mean, to her, she loved my tan skin. Because that's what was, you know, all the moms were trying to mm-hmm. get that. Meanwhile, my mom, colorism was prevalent. <laughs> you know, my mm. mom grew up, like, post-British India. And, mm. um, yeah, like, fair and white was desired. My mom was like, stay out of the sun. You don't want to get too dark. And I'm like, mm. what the hell? Meanwhile, this chick's like, your tan looks so good. <laughs> <And she's> like, <laughs> so there was a, there were moments like that where, which were confusing and mm-hmm. which I sort of felt um, othered for sure. But there was also, it know, look like my, a lot of Asian American women, my exact age, who grew up in urban areas or even rural areas. Mm-hmm. I hear, I've heard these a lot. They have felt like the perpetual foreigner. Mm. And I, I understand that that must have been extremely hard for a lot of people. I did not have that experience. 
And mm-hmm. I think that's why I am the woman I am today. I was I'm incredibly privileged to not have experienced racism um, the way that many of my peers have. We were just, you know, I, I, I think on the one hand, look, I want to recognize, like, my dad, my dad was a general surgeon in town. I mean, we, we weren't, like, flying around in Ferraris or anything. Actually, you, know? <laughs> you know, um, I definitely, you know, have some family members extended who were, but, you know, I mean, the, the, the general... But there was a respect for my dad. That was an era where, like, your doctor was like a god, you know. Mm. Like, people wore their Sunday best to go to his clinic. Um, he would tell me some great, great stories. And, like, even until he passed away a couple of years ago, I even he worked until he, he got sick, which was, like, two weeks before he passed away. And uh, and he said the best thing, and this was this was some, right around the time he passed away, he said, I still have patients who dress up in their Sunday best to come see me. And it's like just incredible to hear that because we were in the Bible belt and there was that respect. Your, your doctor was somebody you just revered and like mm-hmm. you just seen there was a lot of respect. And so I think that that trickled into our personal life, into our family life, that that people recognize, oh, these people, you know, doctors make pretty decent money. At least in that time they were. And um, and so I think that had something to do with it. For sure. I would be absolutely wrong to say that 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 wasn't an element there that shielded us from what would have been the experience of say um an uncle and aunt of mine who to this day work in uh, my aunt works in a factory in in central new jersey Mm. would she have that experience if she's walking to the convenience store the same experience my dad had even if he was rolling up in a very modest car but people knew he was the surgeon in town you know like that that's an immediate I mean, don't, I, I won't say that there weren't awkward moments for my dad and mom. I'm sure mm-hmm. they have far worse stories than me. I'm, I'm, my, my dad actually even, even ate meat, even though he was a lifelong vegetarian when he first got to the U.S. Because mm-hmm. there was just no food. He would go to these conferences and mm-hmm. be like, what can we give you? <laughs> There's literally, like, you will have a piece of bread and some, some really sad lettuce, you know. So there, there were those awful stories. But for me, no. I mean, I definitely had touches of stuff. There were probably a lot of microaggressions. I'll be honest, but I, I couldn't recognize those things because the whole bit of it was not this desperate need to fit in, but mm-hmm. that was my family's story that like, we are here. We're blessed to be in this country. So like, let's just, let's do everything that's American because mm-hmm. America is so great. Why wouldn't we want to celebrate Christmas, even though we're not Christmas? <laughs> so we put up a tree every year. We continue to this day, you know, and it's, it's incredible, but, but the, the awful, awful, uh, experiences that, that many of my peers have gone through, I know I was untouched by those. And it's, I, I have so much, actually, I've had a lot of guilt because as these stories kind of come to the surface mm-hmm. and I've heard them from friends and family, I, I, I sometimes sit down and think with myself, like, was were my eyes closed? Was I just that lucky? Like, what was it? And mm. I think it was like a mixture of that. You know, I was lucky. But I also think I was operating in a different plane. Mm-hmm. Not to say that these awful things were happening. I was like, no, guys, I'm above it. I'm above it, you know? <laughs> but, like, it was like I couldn't recognize what was mm-hmm. And if there was something that kind of felt off or wrong or awkward, my 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 whole MO was to disarm, just to sort of fit in, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think as kids, you're already, it's already hard enough. We would get some questions like, oh, you guys aren't Christian. What are you, what are you doing? Like, one little girl, actually, my one of my brother's, friend's sister she was like much younger than them she she was over my brother was over at her house and 
at their house and she goes you're gonna go to hell you're not christian my brother's like what <laughs> what are you talking about and then the mom like quickly came over and was like no no that's wrong don't say that to them but like she was also kind of like side-eyeing like yeah what you, you guys are what again <laughs> yeah you know so there's there's those microaggressions that i don't think that any of us could could recognize until now and gosh darn i'm so happy that we're having like an open honest conversation about what people's beliefs are and do they believe that i'm not equal to them just because my skin is darker than Mm. did you feel like you starting as a woman of color especially like as you got more and more into a into a place of prominence or or like more in front of like the public eye that you were judged more on your color did you feel like more aggression towards that? I'm definitely, these days I feel incredibly judged by my color. Like, especially these past two years I've been appearing at MSNBC, which has been such a blessing to have such an incredible platform. Mm-hmm. I, I love every appearance because um, it's a chance to meet someone new. I met you. I <laughs> love meeting. I still remember the first time I met you. I was like, gosh, she's so happy. I love her smile. <laughs> like, you know, typically with news, it's like, what are we talking about again yeah. today? Everyone's kind of cranky. But I remember you were such a ray of sunlight. And I especially love meeting younger women in D.C. Like, because mm. it reminds me of when I was younger in this town. And, like, I came here with so much excitement, so much promise. And I, I like to think I still have a lot of that. Like, I'm like, mm. a, like a happy puppy. And, like, there's just <laughs> so much opportunity here, you know? And, mm-hmm. and growing up in a tiny town where there was not that much to do, mm. um, I feel super blessed to be able to have moved out because I know so many people, they going to Myrtle Beach, which was only a, a few hours away, like, okay, not a few, it was like eight solid eight, but, you know. <laughs> a day's work, hard. yes. Yeah, I mean, we we were blessed, my siblings and I, to be able to get on a plane and go visit family in India every mm-hmm. few years. That was a tr- one of the greatest gifts in life my parents gave me uh, was the gift of world travel. And that was because it was so important to them. And, um, and I just remember friends who never even been to that beach that was eight hours away. Uh, and, and it really like, wow, like it definitely opened up my eyes, you know, to sort of what the world is. Um, and, and I realized coming to a big city and being able to afford to live in a big city. And I remember when I got to DC, I worked three jobs for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked three jobs into working on Capitol Hill. For anybody who's listening who doesn't know, Capitol Hill staffer, <laughs> notoriously underpaid. Notoriously <laughs> underpaid, yes. Right? Yes. I taught aerobics. I tutored middle school kids. I feel like I did it all uh, while I held down that, that federal job. But um, but look, like, I mean, it was, it was just, for me, the excitement of being in D.C. Um, and meeting younger women and being able to have a platform to share, like, my background, which mm-hmm. is, as you just said earlier, you just don't hear many people with my story. And it's not like, oh, my God, listen to my story. I'm so great or anything. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm this is so <laughs> remarkable. Listen here. This is so, you know, different. But it's just that I, I find that sharing stories is so powerful. I think it's really important for all of us to, like, hear each other's stories. Because mm-hmm. then I really believe you see people. Mm. You like, you know, immediately when you're, like, Jamaica, I immediately think of the time my, my husband and I were blessed to go to Montego Bay for, for my birthday just the year before last. Mm-hmm. It was my first time. I was so excited. I was like, new country. Woo! Like, <laughs> very, very excited every time I go to new country. Like, almost like a teenager. But the people were so kind and so nice. And, like, every single person we met, 
I just loved hearing kind of like what mattered to them. Like, especially now that I have kids and like hearing about mm-hmm. their kids and kind of like what they were doing, what was the Jamaican way, like what their thoughts and ideas mm-hmm. were. That was cool for me. Like, and I, in meeting somebody like yourself then when I get home and I like get to hear these stories of where people came from, their origin stories, those are so powerful. And even to be able to share like a tiny few seconds of that on national television is like one of the world's biggest blessings. And I, I love it. I, I just feel so privileged and honored to, to have that opportunity. Um, but with that comes a lot of hate and a lot of vitriol from people who don't know me mm. and hide behind, hide behind their technology, keyboard warriors, you know, who literally just, <laughs> they see somebody, they see my face, they see a brown face and the word Republican underneath. And they literally don't even want to listen to what's coming out of my mouth. I've read scores of like Twitter comments that are like, lady, you have no clue what you're saying. Like, you better get with it. Trump is the worst and blah, blah. I'm like, did you not just hear me railing against President Trump and his entire segment. I'm with you. I'm with you. But they just, they see my color. They see, maybe they see my gender. You know, like, they see a, a young brown female with Republican under her name. And in this moment in time, for a lot of media outlets, their viewerships don't like that. And and that's because Republican Party has come to represent something really ugly for a lot of people. And that makes me deeply uncomfortable about affiliating affiliating with the party currently mm-hmm. and moving forward with it. But after having worked for Evan McMullen, the independent presidential candidate in 2016, I was his chief spokeswoman and one of his top strategists. Mm-hmm. After that experience, I made a very conscious decision to come back into the Republican Party and call myself a Republican. Despite what I went through in 2016, which was being unseated as a delegate to the convention, Mm. Uh, the Republican National Convention. And again, people can visit their favorite search engine for that story. <laughs> <laughs> but but I made a conscious decision to come back in. And, and I'll leave it with this because I believed I'd be a better agent of change from the inside than I would the outside. What good would it do for me to leave and point to the other side when I'd made my entire career in this party? So I believe that I'll hang around. Um, if they don't want me, which it doesn't seem they do, uh, then I, you know, I'll still hang around. They tried to kick me out in 2016. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Yeah, you can say whatever you want. Stuff. <laughs> you know, I, I, my mom would be real upset with that. <laughs> dropping the S bomb. I'm upset with myself. <laughs> no, but I mean, look, I get really upset because I mean, it was Donald Trump talks about political witch hunts. I was, I was. <laughs> Perhaps the first victim of one. I was the first delegate elected to the Republican National Convention in the country who spoke out against the president mm. when he was a presumptive nominee. And that 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 was a lot. I mean, that was a lot to take. The 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 just all the awful stuff that followed the party uh, taking action which they shouldn't have taken against me, which was crossing my name off a list of duly elected delegates. Um, death threats, you know, different things like that. Like it was, it was a horrific experience. Nobody should go through that. Uh, but the reality is, is it made me who I am today. Made me realize that change agents are needed. I've banded together more strongly than ever with a the younger segment of conservatives in this country that are determined to stay the course and to say, you know what, the party left us. We didn't leave the party. And so when everything crashes, topples. Um, we'll be here to rebuild it if there's something left to rebuild. 
And at that point, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) didn't mean to interrupt you, but at that point, you know, what do you see in, in yourself or what do you envision being so different than the Democratic Party now? You know, what do you, what do you see being the defining factor? The defining factor will come down to, is this party willing to dump Trump or not? Is this, will, is this party willing to say that was an aberration? That was a very black mark in our party's rich history of advocating for an, uh, an America that has more opportunity for all of us. But I think it'll be a couple of generations until we see that, until we see people say, you know what, that was a time where, no, we don't want to talk about that time. And so that's going to mean an electoral loss for, for the president when he comes up for re-election this November. And people, if he does lose, people then saying, get, having the political courage to say we are done with Trump and his cronies once and for all. Shaming so, them for the numerous things that they've done. Everything ranging from the emoluments clause to the nepotism to the, to the, the war crimes, essentially. Mm. Where do you feel like, so I was asking more so like, you know, when, when you see this rebuilding of Republican Party and, and, and working with that, what, just based on talking to you, you know, what do you see as your, what would your difference then be with Democrats? What do you think the main difference would be between you two? The difference has got to be, it's got to come down to the fiscal. Are we willing to spend our country into debt? without any sort of reining in. Like how much are we willing to let our federal government in our like state houses spend and spend taxpayer dimes on needless wars? Look, I'm like a I'm 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 a pacifist man. I'm like a Rand Paul when it comes to that. I don't think we need to go nation build abroad when we have so much building to do here at home. And if this pandemic didn't teach us that, then nothing ever will. But the difference has got to come down to how do Republicans talk about the founding principles and those that say these are the powers the federal government has and these are the powers the state governments have. And and essentially, look, Democrats are going to want to – they're going to want to do so much with entitlement programs that is going to, I think – if they have the levers of power, which I think they they deserve them right now for other reasons that are related to the health and the well-being <laughs> and the existence of our democracy. I mean, we're just at such a point that we don't even have time to talk about these other values, mm-hmm. almost, it seems, because we're in a, in a situation when the house is on fire. And are you going to wait and save that, like, prize material profi that's uh, sitting on your mantle? That's just a material object. Or are you going to run for your life? Mm. And I think that's kind of what it's coming down to. So, so when it's all said and done, the defining factors will be how much you, how much power are you willing to let our government have? And mm. I think it comes down to that spending power. Mm. Who's got the purse? How much is you know goes in and out? Stuff like that. But right now, right now, um, and, and it has not been seen. It has not been proven. Uh, there's got to be a, a, a divorce. Um, between the Republican Party and the white supremacist narrative and the, the, those who prop up that narrative. Uh, and, 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 and frankly, who are just white supremacists themselves calling themselves Republicans. There's got to be that divorce with the party and with those people. Mm. And that will be another defining moment. But I don't know that we'll see it before November. I think we may see it. We may have a chance to see it after November if Trump loses. If he wins again, game over. Let's scratch what everything I just said. 
<laughs> she, you're like, you plan, guys. Huddle. <laughs> guys, let me just break it down for you right now. If this guy is given a second term, don't just buckle up. Like, let's think about how we fight. We Like, we've got to be in the streets every day. And I am not an alarmist. I am not even somebody that's like, yeah, you know, I'm all for peaceful demonstration. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong. I love that. I'm a big fan of that. Um, but I, I, I really, I'm, I'm not of these stripes when it comes to like social change. I'm like, easy does it, guys. And I'm slow, slow, slow. Not into knee-jerk policymaking, none of that. But this moment is so unusual. And it's so actually genuinely scary. Black and brown Americans. Mm-hmm. But like, if, if the president is reelected, we stand so much to lose. And that number one of all includes our lives. And I think we're already feeling that in this moment because of the pandemic and the lack of leadership. Do you feel like you have been prepared and gotten the experience that you need to be a voice for women in this in this moment? And I'm not just talking about Republican women, but like all women. Do you feel like you can be a member of a, of a coalition to kind of stand up for that? I've wanted to be. I've genuinely wanted to be. I'm still seeking out a place. And I'm still involving myself with so many places where um, I know diverse voices are needed. And diverse when it comes to political ideology and thought. Because mm-hmm. a lot of what I'm going to say does make some liberal women um, uncomfortable. But then a lot of what they say makes me uncomfortable. That's okay. Like, that's okay. That's how you get to solutions <laughs> for everyone is when you bring everyone to the table and you duke it out. You're like, no, 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 this doesn't make sense. This makes sense. This makes sense for me. This doesn't make sense for you. That's how it's done. And it used to be how it was done in this town and in state houses around the country. Uh, but it's not done like that right now. Uh, one of the biggest in- indicators of that was the Women's March in 2017 when I was like all gung-ho ready to go and next thing I heard that they were not and it, this was an official missive from the organizers mm-hmm. but it was it was out there that conservative women and pro-life women were not welcome and I'm like but if it's a women's march and they want to come why would you say you're not welcome you know like just because there's a woman out there who's like no don't spend my taxpayer dollars on elective abortion so that it does is not medically necessary for the life of a mother um that's okay. She might, that's her religious belief. Keep her taxpayer dollars out of it. Let's find other ways to get those funded as mm-hmm. part of the social good. But there are a lot of people who say don't get those funded. Those people should, if they want to, if there's an elective abortion, if, there, if her life, if the mother's life is not in danger, that woman should find her own money to pay for it. If she's not a victim of incest or rape. So there, this is so complex, all the layers. But what good does it do us if we keep those women who don't think like us away from the table? Then we don't chip away at those layers, right? Mm-hmm. And start to have constructive debate and and perhaps get closer to solution. So so those coalitions are, are so necessary where women of all walks are there, American women. I feel like, yeah, I've been well positioned to, to do that. I've, I've, you know, I've I have a lot to say, and, and I've done as much as I can do with women in these past few years when it comes to political empowerment. But I do see one thing, and, and that's why perhaps I'm talking a little more slow, slowly here, is that um, it's a hard it's a hard pill to swallow when I think of the many times that, and I, w- I will say many, that uh, a door's been slammed in my face by a woman, by a fellow woman. Mm. Be- 
because I seem like I'm in competition or I'm a threat to her or something like that. I'm talking professionally. Um, men do it, women do it. But somehow it feels so much worse when a woman does it. Mm, mm. Because we have so far to go when it comes to like shattering that glass ceiling, right? Mm-hmm. I don't even think we're anywhere close. And when it feels like another woman, like a, a woman who should get it, because she's probably experiencing something of the same if she's in your industry or something, isn't saying, hey, come with me, lifting others as you rise. That's so important to do in today's society. And so it's like, it hurts even more when, when women don't come together like that. So I've seen seen a bit of an absence of coalitions that could, could embrace women like me. Mm-hmm. Still choose to identify as conservative um, just because they just don't like it. They just don't like it. And that I think that's where we go wrong. But I've also, I would totally be remiss if I said that I haven't been embraced by many liberal women. Mm. And, and and never been treated ill by the majority of liberal women I meet. I've and, always been sort of, I think, respected for my ideas. And I think mm-hmm. that's part of just being American, which is really great. Did you? And I guess kind of what you were saying before was kind of like led into my other question, because I was going to ask you, like, what's been the most challenging part of your work, you know? And, and I think you're saying, like, doors, you know, being slammed in your face. And I think that's true yeah. of a lot of women from all different backgrounds. And I think especially maybe in the political space or these typically male dominated, you know, areas, um, because I've, I've, you know, done a lot of, um, I don't know if you know the organization called running start. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love um, running start. I'm on your advisory board. Oh, are you? Okay. I was like, I love, I love running start. Um, I love Susanna. Like she's been on the show. Um, mm-hmm. and so like I, I, her whole mantra is just like getting women in those positions. And I think, you know, we've been kind of trained in a way to think that once only one of us makes it, that nobody else can come up because, um, that the one person made it there. And so if they get booted out, like, and there's, we think of it as like a one versus like a line of women can be there and up in, up in leadership. So I think that's important that you bring it up. Cause I've heard that from so many friends of mine, you know, that will talk about being in interviews with other women and, and them being like, you know, trying to judge them and trying to yeah. make it seem like they were incompetent. And to me, that's that's insane, because I'm, I'm of the mindset, if I eat, we all eat, just yeah. in general. Yeah, me too, me too. I love that. So I, love I, that. I, like that you, I like that you bring it up in, in terms of just your experience, but also how it that also relates generally to, yeah. to all paths and walks of life. Um, so I have one last question for you that I ask sure. all of my sure. guests is um thank you so much you know for coming on because this is great i really love this like deep intense conversation i'm really here for it oh man how so how do you You know i can talk for hours oh girl trust me i've had i've i've learned though from past mistakes that we gotta just because editing and people like to tell you it's so long right right um but how do you define being a woman or womanhood? You know, there's, for me, the definition of being a woman is being able to, to, to tap into this inner greatness, this sort of um, this, this ability to feel uh, more than what I think the opposite gender can feel because we're able to give life 
And I think that's really big. Femininity, the power of um, the feminine intuition for me is really big in what I consider to be that definition of womanhood. For me, that's what it's all about. This, this great power we have because we're able to give life if we choose to um, and wish to. Um, so that's really big. And I think womanhood is, is defined by that, being able to tap into that, that beautiful intuition and spread it out into the, the universe, into society and build better because women are more likely to compromise and more likely to build consensus. And so that to me is, is sort of like a, a murky definition, but that, that's where it's at. <laughs> I love it. I love all the answers that I get. Um, uh, so Rena, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I really loved having you on. Um, I really love this conversation and the nuance yeah. that you brought. Um, do you have anything that you want to shout out or give kudos to before we wrap up? Oh man, I want to give kudos to Running Start for being incredible, <laughs> having an incredible uh, effect on my life. I would say I broke out into political consulting nine years ago this year um, because of Running Start. It really it, it gave me the faith that I could do it. They and, are, and people really need to look them up and get involved because it's all about getting to women younger and younger to get them thinking about things differently. They are incredible, and I'll link them in the in the show notes. Um, awesome. Rena, thank you so, so much again thank for you, joining Tyler. me. Um, thank you to all the listeners. Um, if you'd like to connect with the show, and please do follow us on Instagram and Twitter at PrettyFaceLady3. Uh, and please go ahead and like us on Facebook at More Than a Pretty Face. Um, and if you'd like to email the show because you want to say hi or you'd like to be on the show, know someone who'd like to be on the show, please email us at prettyfacewomen at mtapfpodcast.com. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.